their friends, and welcome to another episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I'm your host, Joe Webb, and this is a podcast for spiritual exiles, for all of us who are looking for faith beyond the fences and the confines of institutional religion. In this third episode of season two of the podcast, I sat down with Helen Ride, who is the Southeastern Regional Organizer for the Reconciling Ministries Network, a group of United Methodists that works to seek justice for people of all sexual orientations and gender identities. Helen and I had a really fascinating conversation about their own faith journey and the work of Reconciling Ministries to create space for LGBTQ folks and allies to live fully into what it means to be holistic communities following the way of Jesus. And while a good bit of our conversation focuses on things that are happening specifically within the structures of the United Methodist Church, Helen brings forward a lot of really good, practical concepts that apply across the width and the breadth of faith traditions. So please join me in giving a very warm Accidental Tomatoes welcome to my friend, Helen Ride. You know, I, I live in a pretty progressive bubble in my work, right? And so you can, you can think that things aren't as bad as they are. Like, no, surely people aren't still saying that stuff or doing that stuff. Surely people aren't still... But the fact is they still are. And the thing that brings it home to me is that there are still LGBTQ people who, in, who when they encounter a Christian who is affirming are blown away that such a person even exists. Welcome, everyone, to the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. Our guest for this episode is Helen Ride. Helen works with the Reconciling Ministries Network, which is an organization, um, not a branch of the United Methodist Church, but an organization within United Methodism that works for more inclusive communities. Uh, and I'm going to let Helen describe a little bit more about that. But Helen, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited that you could join us. Uh, so why don't you um, kind of introduce yourself to the folks and tell us a little bit about what it is you do with Reconciling Ministries, how you got there, what it is, um, and, and let's just kind of roll from there. So. Sure. Sounds great, Joe. Thank you. So um, I just want to say thank you for the invitation to be on this podcast. It's my very first podcast, which is very exciting. Um, I, 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 am, I am shocked. <laughs> I find that so hard to believe that no, this is your first one, but I'm I, honored. I've yeah. actually been invited to do a second one. So maybe this is a new thing. I don't know. But uh, this oh, is my it's, first. It's a launch, pan to fa- launch, <laughs> launch pad to fame and stardom. Maybe yeah. so. So my <laughs> name is Helen, right? And just for the audience to know, I use they, them, their pronouns. And we can talk about what pronouns are and why they're important maybe a bit later on. Uh, you might be able to detect, but my uh, accent is not from... Uh, the United States of America. I grew up uh, in England and um, born and brought up in England. And in 1998, I moved over to America and um, have done a bunch of different jobs and lived in Massachusetts for 16 years, the first 16 years, now in North Carolina. And um, yes, I've been a special needs teacher. I've worked for a bank. I've worked for a global financial services company doing training. But for the last eight years, I've been doing a job which, as I say, makes sense of the whole of the rest of my life. Um, and I work as an organizer for Reconciling Ministers Network. I cover the Southeast jurisdiction, which is everything from Florida down, sorry, Virginia down to Florida, over to Mississippi and up to Kentucky, which is pretty big, nine states. And now I'm also covering five annual conferences in the Northeast jurisdiction, including 
West Virginia. So right. I'm excited about that. Um, so I've been doing this work for about eight years, and I, I maybe I'll explain a little bit about why I said it makes sense of the whole of the rest of my life. Does that sound good? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So um, I was brought up in a, a nominal Church of England family. Um, we didn't have um, much um, real church background. I was christened in England. You go to the Church of England and they sprinkle you. So I got christened when I was a baby. But I didn't really start going to church significantly until I was about 10 or 11 years old. So for, from about the age of 10 or 11 years old, I was going to a Church of England church um, near where we lived. And then around the age of 18, I had what I would have described at the time as a born-again experience. There were two things that happened, actually three things that happened. Uh, Billy Graham was doing a bunch of rallies over in England and uh, big events. And um, also a chap called Luis Palau, who was another big evangelist. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think maybe the most consequential thing was that a friend of mine gave me the book, The Cross and the Switchblade by David Wilkerson. And when I read that story, it seemed to me that the Jesus that David Wilkerson was following was a fundamentally different Jesus than I had been brought up to know. Because this Jesus sent him from a sort of, you know, rural parish, I think in Pennsylvania from memory, and sent him into the uh, New York City working with gangs and working with folks who are in really desperate situations. And that sort of idea of a faith that totally transformed somebody's life and set them off on a different path to really make tremendous um, impact in other people's lives was was captivating to me. So I I got saved. I would I would probably use different language these days, but certainly my sure. understanding of what Jesus, who Jesus was, and what it meant to be a Christian was radically changed. Um, and and uh, roughly around the same time, it was maybe about a year later, I finally realized what I had suspected about myself for a very long time, and that was that I was attracted to women. And so the combination of these two things was an interesting uh, experience because I landed in a church, which was, um, I I went to the evangelical, charismatic, sort of fundamentalist type churches in England, um, where certainly being gay was not considered okay. In England, we're a bit nicer about it. You know, we don't have the people standing on the corner with nasty signs. Um, We're a bit nicer about saying this isn't okay. But I was in that kind of church environment and at the same time realizing this about myself. And so I ended up with a, a period of about 13, 14 years where I was essentially going through different versions of conversion therapy. So I was uh, praying away the gay. I got prayed over, prayed on, exorcised. I went to conferences, read books. I did every single last thing that they tell you to do to try and stop being gay. Every single one. Um, I didn't hold anything back. I really was very serious about my faith and very seriously believed that it wasn't that the two things couldn't be go together. Um, But then after about 13 or 14 years of that, I was like, it's just not working. Nothing's changing. I'm still who I am. And, uh, and I never had an argument with God about it. I just decided I wasn't going to try changing myself anymore. Um, And one of the things I did do, though, was I moved to America. I always say to people, when you come out, you don't have to move to another continent, but it worked quite well, <laughs> it worked quite well for me. Um, 
And so I moved to America. And when I got here, I was determined that I wasn't going to try and not be gay anymore. I didn't not want to go to church, but I thought to myself, if I turn up to the same kind of church that I've always gone to, we're going to end up having the same conversation we've been having. And I didn't want to have that conversation again. So I didn't go for a very long time. I met my partner, Kate. We've been together for 20 years now, over 20 years. And she's known as Mrs. Lovely on the internet. Yes. <laughs> Mrs. Lovely. So she, she and I have been together for over uh, 20 years now. And at one point, about in 20, 2004, 2005, um, we moved down to Provincetown, Massachusetts which is right at the tip of Cape Cod. If you drive around Cape Cod and keep going in Massachusetts, you, you reach Provincetown. I had really begun to miss being part of a faith community. And so I thought, well, let me just try. Let me see what, who's down here. And who was down there was Provincetown United Methodist Church. Mm. And that's how I became a United Methodist. And that's really began the journey of, of really coming to a place of peace around my faith and my sexual sexuality. These two things now I learned new ways of interpreting the Bible, new ways of understanding how people interpret those particular scriptures. And um, yeah, really just felt integrated again, where those two things had felt like they were pulling me in two different directions. And so not long after that, well, it was a decent amount of time after that, the church became a reconciling church. I became aware of Reconciling Ministries Network and really started to feel a call on my life again to say, maybe there's something I could contribute here. And so, mm. so yes, in 2012, I um, started working part-time for RMN as the Northeast organizer. For the last six years, I've been predominantly the Southeast organizer. And then over the last couple of months, added back five of the annual conferences in the Northeast. So when I say it makes sense to the whole of the rest of my life, what it, what it, means to me is that nothing in God's economy is wasted and the experiences I went through my faith journey my personal journey um, you know I draw on those every day in the work I do and the conversations I have with people and so it's um, this wonderful work it's challenging work some days it's draining work but for the most part it's meaningful work and I feel that if I can contribute in any way to any person who is LGBTQ, not having to go through the struggles I went through as a Christian and feeling like it was feeling like I was incompatible with my faith, mm. then, um, then that's, then that's a good day when I can do that. Wow. So that's how I landed at RMN. That's the backstory to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's so beautiful. I, I, you know, I've, I've been reading a lot of, um, I don't know if you follow Richard Rohr's mm. um, kind of daily meditations, but he he was writing some stuff a couple of weeks ago about that that idea of um, how we serve people out of our own woundedness mm-hmm. somehow, mm-hmm. and what you just described, I think, is a really kind of beautiful uh, a beautiful picture of that. And then um, I've I've also been um, fairly recently. And within the last few years, introduced to some of Peter Rollins's mm-hmm. work, and, and he talks a good bit about that that kind of um, that that are uh, where where we are often hurt the most is where we encounter God the most, mm-hmm. and where we can most help other people. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I believe that to be true. I think you know, I think you can get into a dodgy theological position where you like somehow God allows the harm in order for us to experience the 
you know, the good outcomes. I don't believe that, but I do believe that, um, that nothing's wasted, you know, that if we, if we orient ourselves towards God and towards hope and towards grace and towards love, um, that nothing's wasted. Yeah, that's, I, I totally agree with you theologically. Like I think, because we, that, that's such a fine line to walk to Mm -hmm. say, you know, you are called in some ways to serve in those places of your wounding. Um, but to say that God causes those things right. so that you can, I, I agree with you. That's kind of a, a dodgy theological mm. position to take. But I do think there's, when you said we we orient ourselves towards grace and hope and love, mm. um, I, I think I think there's something in that, that that says if we are paying attention to the world around us and the circumstances that we live through, then certainly we make ourselves available for God to use those things. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, if that kind of makes sense to, to word it that way. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And um, it's certainly been my experience for sure. So, yeah. So I could talk a little bit about reconciling ministries network now, if you like. And give, yeah. Give, yeah. Give please do. Yeah. A little bit of background on that. So as Better they hear it from you than from me, because (laughs) even though I've been part of the movement, following the movement for a while, I'm not great at articulating. uh, Well, the the, the beginnings of it really emerged uh, in the late 60s and early 70s when the United Methodist Church was, as with many churches and uh, denominations, beginning to see the, um, the emergence of the gay community as a community that wasn't going to sit quietly and be and, and, and sit in the shadows any longer, but was going to be public and present and um, not hide themselves anymore. You know, the Stonewall uprising had happened, the Stonewall riot had happened. And so churches were beginning to um, thought that they needed to make some kind of response. Well, sadly, the United Methodist Church response although it was leaning in the 1972 General Conference, the the intent was actually to add a statement that was really much more, um, I wouldn't say fully affirming, but it was certainly not um, discriminatory. It wasn't against LGBTQ people, but in the end, at the very last minute, an amendment was made and the statement of incompatibility was added to the Book of Discipline that said that the practice Mm -hmm. of homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. So that language was added in 1972. And right as that was all happening, there there was a group of people who were saying, we're going to have to fix this. We have to get rid of this. And so different uh, organizations started. There was an organization called Gay United Methodists who became Affirmation. Affirmation is an organization that still exists and is advocating for change in the church. And they started in 1984 they started an organization or they started a group within their group called the Reconciling Congregations Program. And the Reconciling Congregations Program launched in 1984 at the end of the general conference. That general conference, additional language was added. So things weren't getting better, they were getting worse. Additional language Mm -hmm. was added that said that um, self-avowed practicing homosexuals could not be ordained clergy in the United Methodist Church. So in response to that, the Reconciling Congregations Program was ready to bring the conversation to the grassroots level. So taking it out from the polity, from the general conference and the delegates and so on, and to really get it rooted into individual churches and communities who could say, we don't agree with that. We want to be a community. We want to be a church 
that fully affirms and welcomes LGBTQ people. So that was the beginning of it. It started in 1984. We had a name change in about the year 2000 to Reconciling Ministries Network. And so at the end of 1984, we had eight reconciling churches in the United States after one year. 36 years later, we're now well over 1,300 reconciling churches. That's when a whole congregation goes through the process to discern whether to mm-hmm. affirm LGBTQ people. We have communities, which are small groups, typically within churches. It might be a youth group or UMW circle or a Sunday school class or a Bible study group or a choir, all kinds of small groups within churches that become a reconciling community within their church, which may or may not be reconciling. Mm-hmm. And then we have reconciling campus ministries um, as well. So campus ministries have become reconciling. And recently, we've been really focusing also on expanding the number of regional reconciling groups. So we have a number of those, mostly across the South, regional reconciling groups, um, which are groups that are not attached to a specific congregation, but are existing as a sort of connection, a network of people in a particular area who want to help the conversation happen. And they gather together and organize themselves regionally and then hopefully work in the local churches and groups in that area so that's a real focus of our work at the moment actually so that's That's, more or less what rmn is (laughs) (laughs) that that's fascinating and i you know one of the things that as as i've kind of been following you know because i get you you know the emails Mm. every week and, and try to follow you know the the online presence of reconciling ministries um one of the things um, that is really powerful to me is that, you, you know, you have these congregations, communities. I really love what you're saying about kind of these regional mm-hmm. networks. But then you also, there's a whole group of folks that are just classified as reconciling individuals mm-hmm. who have said, you know, my church might not be part of this movement. My small group might not be part of this movement, but this is important to me. Mm-hmm. So how does how does that work you know just for the individuals within that kind of larger structure yeah so actually interestingly um not everyone knows that's a possibility so we have we call them rums which is an acronym because you know we, we like everyone likes an acronym so for reconciling united methodists so we talk about rums reconciling united methodists and these are individual the fact that people it's named after booze know, is right? kind of also attractive <laughs> right <laughs> Well, it works. <laughs> so we actually have, on our books, we have over 43,000 Reconciling United Methodists right now. And these are individual, like you mentioned, individual United Methodists who have said, by signing up, essentially, I don't agree with what the Book of Discipline says. I think it needs to change. I believe our denomination, our church, should reflect the heart of Jesus. And the heart of Jesus was for everybody and against nobody. Certainly he didn't single out those that were on the margins. He welcomed them in. And so these are individuals who have said yes. So, yes, you can be an individual reconciling United Methodist. Um, You could or could not belong to a reconciling community or a reconciling church. Um, A lot of our reconciling communities, most of them, frankly, have started by one or two people signing up to be individual reconciling United Methodist. And then they get together Mm -hmm. and then they start doing something together. So I'm, I'm still mostly encouraged that well I have I have a fundamental belief and I talk about it incessantly and people like yes Alan we know you think this but I'm going to say it again um I believe that in every single United Methodist Church 
for sure in the United States, and I would, I would even say potentially globally, but for sure in the United States, there are people having inclusive thoughts. Mm. They're sitting in their pew. They're thinking to themselves, everything I've learned about Jesus points me to think that Christians should be those who especially welcome those who are othered by other people. Like that's supposed to be our job. <laughs> and yeah. so they're sitting there, they're having these inclusive thoughts, but they're in an environment, maybe they're hearing preaching from the pulpit or what they hear in their local community that leads them to believe that they're, they're probably the only person in that church having those inclusive thoughts. And yet I, I firmly believe, and actually I had an exact example of this on a phone call I was on the other day. Um, that if you speak up and you claim that publicly, you say, listen, I don't believe this. I believe this, that you will find other people sitting right alongside you who are having the same thoughts. Yeah. And it just takes one or two people to stand up and say, I don't agree with that. This is what I believe the Bible says. I was on a phone call just this week. I have an exact example of this, of a, a person who is in a very conservative church and recently posted something um, from RMN, you know, and, and positively, right, was posting because they liked it and um, had somebody reach out to them by phone and just say, how could you be so brave to say that? And, and, and this person said, well, I didn't feel it was brave. It was just, it's just what I believe. And this other person was like, I was longing to be able to be that brave. So all already somebody was drawn to that. And I just think yeah. there's tremendous power. I think it's not even just in the church. I don't really want to get into politics. Maybe we probably shouldn't. But I think it applies in many, many different contexts. Is, I'll give you an example. We live on a street. There are signs on our street. I won't say which or what, but there is, let's just say there are signs. Sure. And many of them do not necessarily reflect my perspective on the world. So we put out one of those signs that says, in this house, we believe, you know, love is love, black lives matter, mm -hmm. um, immigrants are people too, and, you know, feminism is a thing. You know, all those things that you see, right? right? And um, we have had people drive past, slow down, wave, cheer, thank you for putting that out there. This is so great. Um, we even had somebody around the back of our house in another street go out and buy one so she could put one in her yard. And so, <laughs> and this, so this, is a, this is not uh, a neighborhood that has a kind of message out on people's yards. But we've had, I mean, yes, have there been a few people, but I guess here's my point. You just have to own what you believe to be true and yeah. get brave enough to say it. And um, yeah, so where do we start a conversation? Reconciling the United Methodists. So I believe there are many, many, many more people who actually are reconciling the United Methodists but haven't signed up yet. I'm talking thousands and thousands of people who are United Methodists who actually really do believe in the kind of church that we hope to see emerge. And they just haven't, they haven't either haven't yeah. found us yet or they haven't dared to sign up yet. But I'm looking forward well, to when they do. Maybe a few of them will, will hear this podcast. Um, Cause I'm, I'm fairly sure that most of our audience would at least be um, sympathetic 
um, to, to the idea and may just not, as you said, may just not know mm -hmm. um, that that's a possibility. That's so happened, hopefully, especially yeah. after, after the general conference in February 2019. We had an extraordinary increase in the number of reconciling United Methodists. But over and over again, we heard we didn't know we could just sign up. We didn't know we could, we could be a part of this as an individual. And so we're continuing to try and get the word out and let people know, yes, you can. Yes, you can do yeah. that. Yeah. And there's a lot of power in that, yeah. I think, for folks. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, the numbers after General Conference, I was posting sort of almost on a daily, weekly basis for a good long time, how many new Reconciling United Methodists got added in the Southeast jurisdiction because I was particularly focused on the Southeast at that point. But um, it was amazing. People were, yeah, people were wanting to do something. They were wanting yeah. to say, I'm not okay with what just happened. <laughs> we need to fix this. And yeah. so, um, yeah, so it's quite amazing. Hey friends, sorry to interrupt the conversation, but I did want to take just a minute to thank some of the folks that helped make the Accidental Tomatoes podcast happen through our Patreon platform. For as little as $2 a month, you can be part of a growing group of people who are committed to helping create and curate all the great content for the Accidental Tomatoes community. We're grateful for the contributions of all of our patrons, and especially for our Master Gardener-level contributors, Jen and Harry Morgan and Kevin and Heather Malcolm. To learn more about how you can support this podcast and the community we're creating, just go to patreon.com slash accidentaltomatoes. You can also support our work by simply leaving us a rating and a review on your favorite streaming app. That helps other folks find our community and participate in the conversation. And now, back to the podcast. So, um, one of the things I've been thinking about is, and especially as you were kind of telling your own story mm -hmm. uh, at the beginning, um, you know, that a lot of the people who listen to this podcast and who I tend to to be drawn to and to work with are um, folks that have left the institutional church or who are mm -hmm. dissatisfied, um, not just with United Methodists, right? Um, but, but just kind of broadly with the church as an institution. And of course that obviously would include a lot of LGBTQ people. Mm -hmm. um, but all, you know, as, as you've described with your own story, a lot of folks are still, um, committed to, to sticking around and to not walking away from the institution, despite, you know, very deep differences with the institution. Um, what, what is it that keeps folks like you attached and, and keeps you from just saying like, screw this, you know, this is, I mean, it's so harmful in so many mm -hmm. ways and people have gone through such pain, you know, you, your, your personal story clearly describes that. What keeps you around? Hmm. So that's a, that's a good question. I think one of the things I always say, especially to LGBTQ people in this work, is that, um, or, in, you know, who, who, who are still in the church and still struggling, especially after that general conference, the traditional plan passing, I, I, I say to people, you need to do your own internal work and decide, can you still thrive in this environment? So can you... Can you get what you need in terms of your own spiritual growth, in terms of your own sense of safety and security, you know, as a person of faith? If you can still get that and stay and do the work, then by all means do. But I'm not asking anybody. I mean, it's literally you have to, you have to go where you can thrive. And so 
for me personally, I think I'm really driven by this, um, you know, this desire to try and I still, so I still believe here's, here's why I stay in the United Methodist church. And, and I just happened to land in the United Methodist Church, right? I, I don't know. I think probably God was involved in it. But, you know, I didn't like, I didn't grow up United Methodist, even though Wesley came from England. And I'm, I'm always a big disappointment to the American Methodists I meet because they'll <laughs> ask me all kinds of questions about John Wesley in England. And I, I barely knew he existed before I moved over here. So I'm a, a huge disappointment. But I actually believe having, having landed in United Methodism and in Wesleyan, the Wesleyan world, I actually believe we have a perspective on faith and Christianity and grace and and what it means to follow Jesus and to be the church in the world that is something that um, isn't available in other places. I think we have a particular way of approaching things. This idea of personal and social holiness, the idea of, you know, you can't sort of, you have to have these things wedded together. And that part of what it means to follow Jesus is to be in the world and is to make a difference and is to go to the places where people are hurting and, and, and point out the systems that are wrong and the injustice and the oppression. Like that's part of what it is. So I still believe that the United Methodist Church being the second largest Protestant denomination in the United States of America after the Baptists, being, I believe, still the still the most geographically dispersed denomination in the United mm-hmm. States. In other words, we've got churches in more places. Is that if we can get this right, <laughs> if we can point this ship in the right direction, and by the way, that means not just fixing the LGBTQ stuff, which is still in the books, but it actually means living into the things we say we believe about racial justice and gender justice and all those other things. Right. So it's not about just this. It's about any number of other things that we have written nicely about in our books, but aren't necessarily living into as we ought to, if we can get this ship in the right direction, doing the things we say we're committed to doing, then we still actually can do what we say we're supposed to be doing, which is transforming the world. Mm. (laughs) I actually think we can still do it. I actually think there's a possibility because of the way we're connected and because of the number of places we're in, that if we do this properly, that Jesus actually might still use us to transform the world or the part of the world that we're in. Um, And that might be (laughs) probably like for some people, that's magical thinking. But but I actually still believe it's possible. I think if if we get ourselves together, if we get our boat pointed in the right direction, because we're in so many places and connected in so many ways, we can be transforming the communities and the cities that we're in, including all the communities that have felt so ostracized by the church and so left behind by the church. Mm. Um, And that we can demonstrate a way of being authentically Christian that doesn't frankly repel people. Yeah, you know, and and that draws people in. It gives people a sense of purpose and meaning and community and care and love and grace and mercy and all those things. Mm. Um, you know, for better or for worse, I still believe that. <laughs> I don't know. It, you know, and everything you just <laughs> described is is precisely what John Wesley did in yes. England in the 18th century. It was 
Now, you know, certainly um, gender issues would not have been even on the radar in in, in that community at, at that time. Mm-hmm. But but John Wesley was the most inclusive, mm-hmm. you know, leader of the church of, of an era mm-hmm. by taking church out to the people mm-hmm. rather than becoming this kind of cloistered, you know, internally focused. And just I, I, I keep looking at the parallels you know, between the Church of England that Wesley was trying to reform mm-hmm, in the 1700s mm-hmm. and so much of so much of the church in general, you know, in the U.S. today, like that we've become so inwardly focused. We've become so obsessed with protecting our privilege and our positions of power, mm-hmm. you know, the whole the whole Christendom project, you know, that we've inherited and certainly i think john wesley would look into this time and say what are you doing mm-hmm. you know there there are people out there who are desperate for this story of love and grace and hope to live into and all you're giving them is exclusion and and you know cutting them off the margins mm-hmm. when it's precisely the opposite of of what his mission would have been, what the mission of Jesus would have been. I think. Mm-hmm. I completely agree with you. I think I often say to people, when Jesus said, build my church, I don't think this is what he had in mind. What we have yeah. created is not what he had in mind. And, um, and I think Wesley was, was had that same kind of sense of we've got to get back to what this is supposed to be about. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I wonder about, this moment too that we're in in terms of the global pandemic and covid <clears throat> that has really shut down church uh as we've known it for the last mm, centuries yeah. right and i wonder what learning moment that is for us in terms of what church looks like later i've been have i've been hatching um dreams in my mind of, of uh we have a, an area behind our house here that has kind of people who owned it a couple of times before were like big outdoor stuff. So there's like a huge kind of area with a cover over it, like a garage, garage shed area. And I'm like, what would it look like for church to be just people in the community gathered around tables? Like my actual neighbors, yeah, my actual real live neighbors <laughs> coming over, <laughs> coming over for a meal and a conversation and maybe, and, and maybe a provocative question, you know, around, what it means to be human in the world, what it means to try and channel love in the world. What does it mean to, what does it mean to be, try and be Christ-like in the world, you know? And I don't know, I, I, I kind of wonder if this isn't a moment where we're gonna see church. I think it's an opportunity. I think it's an invitation, yeah. whether we accept that invitation or not. But I'm excited about what the possibilities might look like and how that might, you know, how we might, we might become the church that meets in so-and-so's house again, right? That's a, if you read. I mean, there's a precedent for that, right? Yeah, <laughs> you, you know. yeah totally. Yeah, I think yeah. it's interesting. So, that's, that's so interesting that you say that because I've been part of a conversation with a lot of my colleagues here in West Virginia. I'm a deacon in the West mm-hmm. Virginia conference. And, and, and similar to you, like the, I've got all kinds of issues, but I stay because I think this is a place of hope. Mm-hmm. If we can, as you say, kind of get the ship pointed in the right direction. Um, but it, it's been so interesting to hear people, especially 
after we got through the first few months of pandemic and everybody was really just kind of scrambling, our, our mutual friend Jenny Williams referred mm. to it as hitting the snooze button mm-hmm. over and over again, right? That we yeah. just kept saying, well, you know, by the end of April, we'll be okay. Mm-hmm. By the end of May, we'll be, you know, we just keep hitting, hitting the snooze yeah. button. And now I think we're starting to realize that things things have fundamentally shifted under our feet and there is a whole new world of opportunities mm-hmm. opening up to us. And so we've been having a lot of conversations not just here in West Virginia, I've been talking to some other colleagues around mm-hmm. uh, the connection about, you know, we, we took that necessary step from repurposing our Sunday morning content to from the sanctuary mm-hmm. to an online format. And so what does that next step look like? And I think what you just described about gathering our neighbors around mm-hmm. um, around you know, the, the issues of spiritual formation mm-hmm. um, and not so much around institutional preservation and those kinds right. of things. I, I mean, I, I think there's some amazing opportunities in that world. And I think that's one way, I, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of new paradigms are going to emerge mm-hmm. if we'll allow them to emerge. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's certainly a powerful one. Mm-hmm. I, think. I totally agree. Yeah. I think it's, yeah. well, it'd be interesting. I've been wanting to go and uh, chat. So I'm, um, I'm officially still a member of the West North Carolina Conference. Um, my membership is here, is in uh, Haywood Street Congregation. But um, we uh, attend locally Sun, Seaside United Methodist Church here in Sunset Beach. And I've been wanting to go to the pastor and say, give me a map of where your people are. And then let's look at where these people actually sleep. At. Like, where are people actually at? And, like, yeah. what does it look like then to say, okay, we've got a cluster of folks here. They may not even speak to each other on Sunday mornings yeah. <laughs> normally, right? But what would it look like to say we're gonna have a we're gonna have a socially distanced in-person gathering, you know, in somebody's backyard. The weather here has just turned beautiful, not too cold, not mm. too hot, the bugs are gone, yay. You know, so you could actually be outside and not be uncomfortable. You know, what does it what does it look like to do that? I think that's I I, I kinda like that idea. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's going to take some determined individuals to ensure that we don't just go back to yeah whatever it used to be, right? Yeah. Um, so. there, there's always a strong impulse to go back to mm. Egypt, right? You sure. Know, so. yeah. 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 Sure. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, in in terms of uh, the work of reconciling ministries. Is uh, is this whole idea of um, of dialogue? Like how 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 do you see the role of reconciling churches, communities, um, in keeping channels of dialogue open between faith communities in general, not just reconciling communities, and the LGBTQ community, mm. um, and then and maybe you know between the LGBT, LGBTQ community and just the church in a broader sense, but, mm. you know, so both on kind of a micro and a macro level, what's the role of, of reconciling um, United Methodists in particular, but certainly, you know, allies of, of any denominational strike. Yeah. Um, how, you know, what, what's the role in keeping those, those channels of communication open? So that, that's a good question. I think there is so much trust that has been lost between the, if you think mm. about the LGBTQ community writ large, right? I rarely meet a person 
who doesn't have as part of their story, especially in this country, right? So in England, uh, if you're a churchgoer, you're you're a minority, right? You're not mm. part of the majority. But in this country, especially in the South, you know, it's highly unusual to find somebody who doesn't have some kind of story about church in their background. And so for the LGBTQ community, oftentimes there's a story and it hasn't gone well, right? So there's, 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 yeah. this, there's this huge kind of... So I, I think part of, the, um, part of the ways that we would encourage reconciling churches and communities is to engage not by, not by asking the LGBTQ community to come to you, but to go to them. So we, yeah. we often encourage groups to, and some groups do this more than others, honestly, frankly, you know, some do and some don't, but I, I'm often encouraging them to, you know, find out where the gay-straight alliances are in your community at the high schools or the colleges. What can you do to support them, even if it's just sending a card of encouragement or if it's like if they're having, a you know, some kind of event and you can help feed them for an event or, you know, what about there are a bunch of um LGBTQ youth centers, drop-in centers in different communities in the South. And I've had folks from churches, even folks whose church, or they don't have a reconciling community, but there's a group of them that know that they need to be doing things, you know, reaching out. And so they've reached out and helped either become volunteers there or help them do fundraising or anything to support the ways in which the queer community is supporting itself without mm. an agenda. I think is really important. And then to me, as relationships get built, then, you know, it's not unusual for people to start telling the stories of faith. It's not unusual for them to start sharing their history or their journey through church or whatever else. And then, and then you can see people, you know, maybe moving in the direction of becoming part of the church or part of the community. But I think the first thing is you have, as, as Christians, Specifically, as Christians, we have to prove ourselves trustworthy, <laughs> the mm. queer community, and that we are that we we're 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 not. And sadly, there are still way too many examples of churches who are who look like they're welcoming and they're hip and they've got the young people doing the young things. But when it comes down to it, you peel back the layers that is not what's going on there. Yeah. So we, yeah. we have a lot of trust building to do. And I think the best way to do trust building is to, is to, is to help without an agenda, right? Is to walk alongside without an agenda and just simply yeah. to be alongside and to support and encourage and find out what they need, find out how they, what help they would be useful. Um, I was saying to some folks the other night, you know, churches participating in pride parades, you know, I always think that don't don't most gay people know that there are Christians who actually do like them and don't want them to change? But every over and over again, I speak to folks from churches who participate in pride parades who have people come up to them who have never encountered a Christian who is affirming mm. until that moment. Imagine, I mean, this is, I think this is sometimes... You know, I, I live in a pretty progressive bubble in my work, right? And so you can, you can think that things aren't as bad as they are. Yeah. Like, no, surely people aren't still saying that stuff or doing that stuff. Surely people aren't still. But the fact is they still are. And the thing that brings it home to me is 
that there are still LGBTQ people who, when, who, when they encounter a Christian who is affirming, are blown away that such yeah. a person even exists. Happens over and wow. over. So, um, yeah, I think that's I think that's the biggest part of it is prove that we're trustworthy. Mm. Walk alongside, help them, let them set the agenda for what they need. Yeah. And build relationships that way. Yeah, and I think a lot of times that probably goes against a lot of, especially folks who would come from more evangelical kinds of um, traditions, mm. that um, the tendency is to be a recruiter, right? <laughs> to to go into a new community and 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 with the agenda of. And, and it's not it's not an agenda that's that's not without authentic love and care, right. but it's it's still that like it's almost like a bait and switch, mm-hmm. right? Which is part of the distrust issue um, that I'm going to go to your community because I do genuinely love you, mm-hmm. but the the whole point is to bring you back into my community rather than what what is probably a healthier model of how can we together build some whole new kind of community, mm. right? Um, that, that is affirming, inclusive, you know, all mm-hmm. of those things um, rather than, you know, I mean, th- there's some, I, I'm kind of thinking out loud as I'm talking through this, but there's something to be said for um, within the institution, you know, having those voices from marginalized communities to say, look, here's where you're messing it up mm-hmm. and please listen. Um, but I, I think too often we go, we send people out or people go out with that like explicit idea that, you know, we're going to grow our community by colonizing right, mm-hmm. your community. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, again, I think that's just a place where we need some new paradigms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have, uh, we, often we have two ways in which churches kind of, um, can respond to the idea of becoming reconciling. And both are really false expectations. The one false false expectation is we're going to become the gay church. We won't be able to stop them coming to our church. And the other is um, that, that, so that's from people who don't want that to happen, right? And then for the people who do want that to happen is we're going to become reconciling and they're all going to come to us. And then I get a call six months later saying, we became reconciling and there's still no gay, you know, there aren't any people here. What, what are we doing wrong? And, and you have to say, well, you know, what have you done? Apart from put a, a, a flag out maybe and a, a sign on your, you know, something on your website, um, how else are you reaching out to that community? How are you supporting them? What are you doing to encourage them to, to support the, the groups that they're a part of and so on? So it's... Um, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And it, as you were saying that, it kind of occurred to me that maybe for some reckon, you know, there's certainly painting with really broad strokes, mm-hmm. you know, but for some reconciling communities, it might be that the best work you can do will never bring, you know, right. queer people into your congregation, but you will support the LGBT community in your neighborhood mm-hmm. or your town or whatever mm-hmm. that is in ways that help everyone kind of thrive. Yep. Yeah, yeah I agree. And the other, another thing I just want to 
to say here is that that our reconciling communities, if they're really going to be uh, our reconciling churches, if they're really going to be uh, living into the values of what it means to be reconciling, is that they're not just going to focus on the LGBTQ community, right? They're going to focus on uh, all the other ways. Like we we often, um, you know, we often uh, compartmentalize how mm. we do justice work or do, you know, work in the community. And, and I think, I think we need to be learning to do it much more holistically and that, and discovering that all of these things are connected. So, so are we, are we, you know, helping uh, support the Black Lives Matter movement in our community? Are we working for racial justice? How are we supporting the black churches in our community, especially at when the public rhetoric right now is so damaging and hurtful? Like what are we doing to reach out and support and to walk alongside and listen to those communities and build relationships there. That's, these things are all connected. We can't, um, we shouldn't, we can, because we have been doing for a long time, but we shouldn't, we shouldn't just see this as a one issue uh, concern. It is not. LGBTQ people exist as parts of different racial and ethnic identities and minorities and immigration statuses and education statuses and economic statuses and all those different ways that people exist in the world. And so um, we have to really um, be encouraging one another to look at that and look at how we're, how we're engaging in the work. Are we looking at it from every perspective that should be looked at? Yeah, that's a really good segue to my next question <laughs> actually, because um in recent months, um, Reconciling Ministries Network has been really intentional about um, talking about those issues of intersectionality, right? Mm. And so you've got this um, rooted and rising um, right. campaign. Is that the right word for yeah, it? Yeah, I think or? it's a campaign. I kind of worry about yeah. campaign as a language, but we couldn't find another word that fits. So I think campaign is probably, it's really a combination of a campaign and a commitment. I think yeah. there's a combination it, of those it looks, things. What it looks like it, to me, anyhow, is um, is a vision statement taking on life, I guess, Yeah, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, that yeah. does make sense, yeah. So the Rooting and Rising campaign really grew out of, you know, our experience of these last six months and a, a, a sort of, having to suddenly pivot to something like everyone else, right? Everyone in the church world has had to sort of like, what do we do now? Pivot, you know? And so at Reconciling Ministries, we had been focused on the upcoming, upcoming general conference, which is supposed to have been in May. We were working in all the ways, which we continue to do working at all different levels within the church. Our executive director was part of the protocol group that, that met and is part of that still. Um, so we, we're, we've been doing that and continue to do that. But, but this sort of marker that we had of May, which was going to sort of shift whatever was coming next, disappeared. We're used to being on the road a whole lot, like, you know, a, a, a great deal. And now we're all at home on Zoom meetings. Um, so we had to think about, really take some time to think about what is um, – what is ours to do in this moment in time? And then in the midst of that, we also had 
George Floyd's murder, Breonna Taylor's murder, Ahmaud Arbery's murder, and so many others. Of, of again, this sort of real another layer of awakening amongst the white community of what have we been allowing to happen in our midst? What is mm, happening yeah. here? And so, so two things kind of emerged. One was as a justice organization that has always included intersectionality as part of our values, in what ways have we not really lived into those values? We are still a predominantly white movement in a predominantly white church in the United States, right? The US United Methodist Church is extremely like 90 something percent white, right? And, and the reconciling movement is that way too. And yet that does not reflect our values. If we have been living into our values completely and authentically, then we shouldn't reflect the demographic of the United Methodist Church. We should be a more diverse community and we're not. And so we have made um, a commitment to a focus, we're calling it a pillar of, of really exploring how we center intersectionality. And that, would in, that includes what I've been calling um, a fearless, uh, searching and fearless moral inventory to use some 12 step language, mm -hmm. right? And, and I think that's, I think as a white person in the United States, as a justice organization in the United States that is predominantly white, it is a requirement for us to do that. We have to do it, not because, um, you know, not because it looks good, because, but because it makes a, a, it makes a mockery of all we stand for if we're not doing that. We have to yeah, do that. Yeah. So we're going to be doing a, th a thorough, thorough searching moral inventory of all aspects of our work as staff, as board, as uh, a movement. The staff have been um, doing uh, some whiteness at work um, trainings and conversations and really digging deep into, into the way we operate and uh, the ways in which we've centered whiteness over and over again and really exploring that. So that's a huge part of it. Um, and the other part of it was the pillar is, at this moment in the United Methodist Church, when so much is still desperately uncertain, we just don't know, how can RMN best contribute to help change happen right now? And we just felt that it's going back to our roots thing, right? It's going back mm, to the grassroots yeah. of, you know, using this movement that's been created, using this network of now over 1,300 churches and communities to expand itself so that that in this interim time between now and next um, August, if that's when General Conference happens, so that we can see more and more communities and churches emerging who are willing to publicly say, this is the kind of church we want to be, this is the kind of values that we have, this is the kind of welcome and affirmation we want to extend, and to, to see that expand as much as possible, which... I believe will have value no matter what happens with the denomination. So, so there are so many things that are out of our control right now, denomination, yeah. like just what we have no idea. But what is in our control is how can we impact and expand the reconciling presence, the presence of people who want to live into and, and create communities and churches of welcome and affirmation for all people. 
no matter their sexual orientation or gender identity or gender expression or racial ethnic identity or economic status or anything, that we're creating communities that are like that. And that those communities have value and change lives and save lives, no matter what the denominations decide to do. You know, so that's what Rooted and Rising really is about. It's about, it's about transparency, authenticity, a reckoning around our commitment to intersectionality and living into that and making changes that need to be made and working with our churches and communities to encourage them to do the same kind of work. Um, and it's about digging into this grassroots movement and keeping planting and planting and planting yeah. groups and, and communities all over the place because, because those things will change lives. Even if the denomination continues to stagger around, like honestly, sometimes you wonder, I don't know what, that <laughs> <laughs> uh, we can still, we can still make a difference. I was just on the phone with a friend of mine who lives locally and I was bringing up a map of the two counties that are you know, like we're in one county and the county next door. And then I searched Methodist. So I'm like bringing up the Methodist churches and like, what does it look like for us as reconciling United Methodists in this area to proactively reach out? <laughs> to mm. Like nobody else is going to do that. That's the other thing here, right? Everyone's talking about the post-separation United Methodist Church and it's going to be this and it's going to be that. But who is doing who's inviting people into that who's who's setting a vision for what that's going to look like and telling people what that might look like and actually visiting with people and telling people about it you know i don't know that people yeah. are doing that somebody's got to do that and i feel like the reconciling community the reconciling movement our network of churches and communities and individuals we can do that that's what we've done in ourselves we've taken that journey ourselves and we can help other people to take it too. Yeah, I'm on a soap, that, I'm on a soapbox, Joe. I'm sorry. That's awesome, though. <laughs> I, I love your soapbox, Ellen. <laughs> I mean, what what you're describing though is, <laughs> I mean, it, I come back to it, like it's so Wesleyan for one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it there's such a strong sense of identity there. And I think maybe that's where a lot of folks, and again, this is very United Methodist centric. I hope I hope we haven't lost all of our non-Methodist listeners <laughs> by now. But um, so many people are just waiting to see what the denomination is going to do rather than just claim who the heck you are yeah, and be that community, right? Oh, no, no, and, no, no, no. and then it doesn't matter. Ultimately, I mean, you're going to be affected, right, right. by these denominational right. decisions. But but if you're living into that identity of the the kind of church or the kind of faith community that you feel like you've been called to be, mm-hmm. that that work is not going to change by the decision of some committee somewhere, oh, right? No, <laughs> yeah, it's not. And I think it gets us, you know, I think it gets us ahead. It answers the questions that you know. It, it I I think what I hope is that it proves presents what the French would call a fait accompli. It presents a predetermined decision yeah. for those that, who eventually, and I am a delegate to General Conference, <laughs> that <laughs> eventually whenever we do get a vote, that it's obvious what we need to do because the church has already gone there. 
you know, and so I hope that's going to be part of it. And I think for the non-Methodists, I would say this. I don't think there's any of this that doesn't entirely apply broadly writ large as who we are as, as human beings amongst other human beings in our communities and neighborhoods. Yeah. Like you can slap a church label on it or not. Or you could you could put a you know it could be a, a temple or a synagogue or, or 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 any other kind of community or whatever. The essence, the essence at work here is: Are we going to look out for one another? Are we going to care for one another? Are we going to love one another in a real way, not just ranting on Facebook? <laughs> you, mentioned, you mentioned Richard Raw earlier, but he sent an email earlier this week that. Um, Really, I've been, I read it every morning since he sent it. And it speaks about this idea of, he quoted a young Jewish woman who wrote during the Holocaust. Yes. He died, I think, at 29. And the quote was about finding the place inside herself where God dwelled and God, where you, God, are there. She, she addresses yeah. God as you, God, are there. And then Richard Raw continues to talk about the idea. And actually, uh, Valerie Kaur, who is a Sikh um, activist and, and uh, person, social justice person, has talked about this idea of the womb and the tomb. And, and he said, Richard Raw said, you know, what if our main job right now is to be the womb for the presence of God in this moment? That, as, yeah. that we, we are the containers of God and God's love. And, and however you want to interpret that, whatever faith tradition you're, you might be from, um, that that's our job in our communities. So I think, I honestly think this applies everywhere to everyone. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> like this is a charge writ large for how we're going to be in this moment. And um, are we going to sit back and let whatever happens happens, or are we going to engage? Not just I'm not just talking politically. I'm I'm talking just communally, you know, in a neighborly kind of way. Are we going to engage? What are we going to do? Yeah. I bake. That's what I do. Not very well, by the way. But one of the but, things that but I- for the <laughs> listeners who have not encountered you online, you have put a whole new twist on the the great. British baking show with your own television, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) So if you've missed Helen baking on her Facebook page, you really need to to go find that um, because it's delightful in every way. Yeah. Yeah. So I I think, you know, one of the things I did after 2016, when the person I was hoping to get elected, not did not get elected. I went and baked some cookies. Actually they were cranberry shortbreads. And I took them down to my neighbors who I didn't know at that time who had Trump signs on the lawn. Sorry, the other person signed on it's the lawn. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> and I, we, I, we've tread this ground <laughs> in this podcast before. <laughs> I, uh, they, were, they were sat out on their, on their porch and I, I strolled up with my cookies. <laughs> and I said, hi, I'm Helen. I live up the road. And, and I literally told them why I was there because I put it on my Facebook page. I'd said... <laughs> I said, no matter what happens in this election, I'm going to bake cookies and bring them down to my neighbors who support a different candidate than I do. 
And so I thought, well, I have to do it now. I was thinking I was going to go down there happy because I'd won. And instead I was going down there <laughs> sad because I lost. And, um, and, you know, we had an extraordinary conversation and they have become dear friends. We've moved from that neighborhood now, but um, we, uh, you know, we still don't see eye to eye at all on, on many things, but we know each other now. Yes. You know, we know each other. We're not a mysterious person who just put a sign on the lawn. We know each other and um and we've been there for each other and had meals together and shared recipes together and you know been people, mm. become people to each other. Yeah. Well that's I just I just feel like that's you know, we have to we have to get back to that. Yeah. I think it speaks to how I get the gospel is a long game, mm. you know, um, and and so often we want to see immediate results. So mm-hmm. even from a gesture like that, mm-hmm. you know, we might be disappointed if we didn't change someone's mind or or a relationship doesn't flourish out of it because we have this mm-hmm. particular kind of difference. Rather than say, let's continue to just plant and water these mm-hmm. seeds and see. What, and, and maybe my agenda is not the right, you know, to be humble enough to say, maybe I, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe my thinking is not correct too, but let's let this relationship mm-hmm. grow and flourish so that mm-hmm. we can know each other, as you said. Yep. And, and maybe who knows what happens 20 years down the road from right. that flourishing. We, you know, know. You, we just don't know, but, but we're so often so impatient to get results, I mm-hmm. think. So. You know what I'm going to do when we get off this podcast? I'm going to phone my friend. I'm awesome. going to phone her up because I haven't spoken to her since we left that area. And I'm going to call her up and check in and just see maybe she's changed her mind about who she's going to vote for. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fantastic. But I'm going to call anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, message me and let me know, how, know. It was, how it goes because I'm, I'm curious now. <laughs> Well, listen, Helen, I, I know we're getting kind of close to the end of, okay. um, of our time here. Um, and, and you've kind of already answered this in a way, but just, you know, as you look forward down the road, and, I, and again, I think you've kind of already kind of articulated a vision for the present that, that lives into the future. But, um, you know, what, what are your kind of dreams and goals for the reconciling movement um, going forward? Well, you know, I always say to people, actually, what we're really trying to do is work our way out of a job. (laughs) Yeah. Because once we've achieved our goals, you don't need us anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I also say, and I have used this quote sometimes over and over, is which is a quote I picked up from Scott Harrison, who's the executive CEO of Charity Water. And it's an ancient rabbinic saying that says, do not be afraid of work that has no end. Mm. And, you know, our history would indicate that the work ahead of us in terms of LGBTQ justice, which is relatively new, is a long road ahead because the road for racial justice, which is older, has still got so far to go. We're just learning yeah. every day the things that we haven't done and that, that continue to systemically oppress people of color, particularly black and indigenous people of color. You know, so I think what I hope for, I guess, what I hope for is hope. I hope mm. that people continue to hope 
and 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 put that hope into action that they continue to to have that perspective of we might not have got there yet but we're making a difference we're still making a difference we're still making a difference yeah and that there's still more that we can do and 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 self-care needs to come into that right we need to learn how to rest and take a minute and do you know make sure we're still together enough for the journey <laughs> but mm -hmm. i really hope people continue to have hope because this is a long Oh, I mean, this is not, even if we change the language as Methodists, even if we do that, even if we finagle some solution, which allows at least part of the church to leave behind the discriminatory language, the work is still ahead. The work is yeah. still ahead because we are still works in progress as individuals. I mean, I'm learning constantly the things I don't know, the things I didn't know I didn't know every day, <laughs> yeah. every day. And so I think if we can just maintain a, a a perspective of hope and community, and and not feeling that anyone, no one of us can do this, we have to we have to join side by side, and mm. do whatever we can in all the ways that we can, as somebody else once said. Yes, yeah, I think <laughs> you know. I think there's a, an old Englishman that had that. I think maybe so. Quote, yeah. <laughs> so speaking of, speaking of Englishmen, I have to um I. I have to ask every English guest on my podcast. You're, yeah. the, you're the second one, oh. um, Sean Gladding. I don't know if you know um, who Sean is. I don't. Um, he's he's uh, he wrote a book called The Story of God, The Story of Us. Wow. Um, I met him um, when I was in seminary at Asbury in Kentucky. Okay. Um, and he's kind of a <clears throat> kind of I don't know. He's done a lot of work in like building intentional community and stuff like okay, that. Okay. So, cool. But he's. Um, He's a native of Norwich, um, okay. and so so we had to get into to our favorite football teams. Oh. Um, so I have to ask if you have if you so, have a favorite football club. It's complicated. So when I was growing up, I was a Chelsea fan, and my brothers still are Chelsea fans. But as I was um, young adult, my early twenties, I had a friend who is still a really good friend who is a complete and utter Arsenal enthusiast. So the truth of the matter is probably I have to say Arsenal. Arsenal is the team I have seen most live in in person, like games, mm -hmm. actual matches. I've even seen, I was even watched Arsenal when they still had open stands, like when you stood in the stands and there were no seats. So when, oh, the, wow. when the crowd moved, everybody moved. <laughs> <laughs> I actually had that experience uh, at a game there. Um, so yeah, so I think it, it's probably Arsenal, but I'll be honest, uh, I don't really follow that much closely. <laughs> well, the, the main reason I ask is so I can brag because I'm a Liverpool man. Ah, so, <laughs> no, 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 no. although I have to admit, I'm 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 a fairly recent convert to English football. Okay. Um, one, my oldest daughter got into it several years ago, and um, her her favorite uh, author was a guy named John Green. He's a young adult author, oh, okay. and he was a big or still is, I guess, a big Liverpool fan. And so she's, she kind of got me into it. And, uh, no, but it. since we're kind of the champions of everything, that's how little I but know. I, I don't know who's winning anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, thanks again, Helen, for being on. Um, so just one last question, you know, where can folks connect with you or with um, Reconciling Ministries Network if they're interested in becoming, mm. you know, a part of that movement, either as, an individual or as a faith community. Yeah. So um, they can go to rmnetwork.org, R for reconciling, M 
for ministriesnetwork.org and then forward slash rum r-u-m and that is the sign up page so rmnetwork.org forward slash rum r-u-m is how you sign up as an individual and um yeah if you go there my email address and contact information is on the staff page there so um i have a, a wannabe website that i haven't updated for two years which is called inclusivethoughts.com which is a nice. great website and i should write on it more often <laughs> uh, <laughs> maybe you'll be inspired maybe you'll get so many requests from accidental tomatoes <laughs> yeah there you go and then I'm, <laughs> I'm on facebook as helen ride and some a bunch of my posts are public because of i post reconciling related stuff as a public post so people can see a whole bunch of stuff including my baking videos <laughs> if they're interested <laughs> outstanding it's the best follow on facebook right now i tell you what well helen thanks again so much for um, being with us for this episode of the podcast it's it's been a joy to uh to get to talk with you to get you to know you a little better and hear a little bit more of your story and the important work that reconciling ministries network is doing thanks joe it's been fun thanks for thanks for the invitation really enjoyed it very good uh thanks Wow, what a great conversation. Thanks again to Helen Ride for that amazing dialogue, for all of her great ideas. And if you're not already a part of the Reconciling Ministries Network, I hope you'll take the time to check out their website and see how you can get involved. Remember, you can find all of the content for the Accidental Tomatoes community online at accidentaltomatoes.com. And across the social media world, we are at Accidental Tomatoes. Be sure to like and follow our Facebook and Twitter and Instagram pages for all of the up-to-the-minute updates of the things that are going on in our community. You can find me, Joe Webb, at my website, joewebwrites.com. And on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, I am at joewebwrites. If you have ideas or suggestions for future podcast topics, I would love to hear from you. Contact us on Facebook or Twitter or email us at accidentaltomatoes at gmail.com. And again, if you enjoy the podcast, please be sure to give us a rating and review on whichever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Once again, that helps other people find us and connect with our community and to participate in this conversation we're having together. And just a reminder, if you want to support the work we're doing here at Accidental Tomatoes, you can donate through Patreon, where your support helps us to offset some of the expenses of producing content for the community. Just go to patreon.com slash accidentaltomatoes to learn more. So until next time, keep on growing outside the fences and join us again for another episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. <laughs>